You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. On this episode, we're going to be talking about some of the nutrition practices by some of the healthiest, most long-lived cultures in the world. In addition, we're going to be talking about some of the things they're not eating. We're going to talk about the advent of artificial foods. That includes, in particular, artificial sweeteners. I know we have AI. It's popping right now. We've got artificial intelligence on everything. But the question is, when we're talking about something that is artificial, does that mean human? Does that resonate with human? Our human cells, our human DNA, when we are synthetically manufacturing things, is there going to be any health ramifications that we need to be aware of? And so we're going to be talking about that as well. Now, when we're pivoting away from artificial sweeteners and artificial foods in general, where are we going to get that sweet taste from? Where are we going to get that sweetness in our lives? Our special guest today is going to mention a food that's been utilized for thousands of years that surprisingly doesn't have the same negative metabolic impacts as conventional things like cane sugar and what you're going to learn about artificial sweeteners. And what I'm talking about is the power of honey. A recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Nutrients detailed how raw honey intake can improve our fasting blood sugar levels, improve lipid metabolism, and reduce the risk of heart disease. Additionally, the scientists noted that the vast antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties that honey has is one of the reasons that it's so good for our heart health. Now, as it said, what's good for our heart is good for our brain and vice versa. Research cited in the journal Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine determined that honey antioxidants have nootropic effects, such as memory enhancement. Plus, honey polyphenols are also directly involved in activities that attenuate microglia-induced neuroinflammation, so helping to reduce inflammation in the brain, helping, again, to improve memory deficits and act at a true molecular level. There's something about honey. Keyword here, raw honey. We want to make sure, as our special guest is going to talk about today, that it's not riddled with toxicity because the environment that our bees are in are going to determine the quality of our honey. There is one company that's doing third-party testing to ensure that there are no nefarious pesticides, heavy metals, or other toxicants coming along with the remarkable benefits that you can get from raw honey. And I'm talking about the folks at Beekeepers Naturals. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. You get 20% off their incredible superfood honey and their incredible propolis spray, their bee pollen, and just 20% off store-wide. Head over there, check them out. It's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S, naturals.com forward slash model. Again, you get 20% off store-wide. I love them so much. They're focused on regenerative beekeeping that really help to expand the population of bees and also expanding the land access, healthy land access that bees have so that we're protecting the bees who are so important in protecting our food ecosystem. Head over there, check them out, beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Healthy Wealthy by I Am Righteous. This is one of my top three podcasts. 
Sean is amazing at informing society about what is truly used as a money source no matter how big the risks are to the human race. I've only been in tune with The Model Health Show for about four to five months, and the audio app has changed my view about America, food, etc. I would inform people to listen and see how much you'll be aware of what's going on around the world and a different method on how you can protect your body from being harmed. Keyword, your body. And that's what this is really about, is empowering you to make decisions about what feels good for you, what feels good for you and caring for your family. And empowerment is the undertone of all of this. And I appreciate you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. And without further ado, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Regardless of the nutritional protocol that you subscribe to, we've got so many different labels for the way that we eat today. Every single person can get a lot out of this episode. And I invite you to extend an open heart and open mind in a place of compassion and a spirit of adventure and discovery, because we're about to cover a tremendous amount of ground and cover a lot of topics. But again, the heart of all of this is to be empowered with our food choices and doing what's best for us as we are right now and allowing ourselves to change and evolve as we go along. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Saladino. He's a double board certified physician and nutrition specialist, and he completed his residency at the University of Washington and he attended medical school at the University of Arizona, where he focused on integrative medicine and nutritional biochemistry. He's a best-selling author and host of a top 10 podcast, Fundamental Health, and he's also been featured on prominent media outlets like The Doctors. And now he's back here on the Model Health Show for another incredible conversation. Let's jump into this interview with the one and only Dr. Paul Saladino. All right, my guy. What's up, Dr. brother? It's Paul good to see Saladino. you. Paul Saladino. Thanks it's for having me. Good to see you again. Of course, man. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. We've got so much to talk about today, and we're going to cover a lot of ground. Let's start this conversation off talking about something that it's, if we zoom out and take a look at this subject matter, and we think about through the years, like, we're having a turn towards more natural food, right? Whole foods, real foods, there's this movement. But at the same time, there's this parallel universe of more and more artificial, right? And one of those being the big one, artificial sweeteners. And as soon as I hear that label, my cognitive bias is like, maybe this is a problem. But at the same time, a lot of folks who are in the health space are like, this is, you know, this is totally fine. This is my thing. And just to provide some informed consent, Let's talk a little bit about artificial sweeteners. Yeah, I think that there is some intuition that humans have with regard to these things, like your, your, your antenna's going up saying, maybe this isn't something good. But it's, but it's important to consider the science and ask, what does the science really suggest and what do we know about artificial sweeteners? I believe there are some larger meta-analyses suggesting that they are weight neutral or perhaps not harmful in terms of weight. But when people in the health space suggest that artificial sweeteners are benign, I kind of scratch my head and think, how are they ignoring multiple, multiple regions of research on artificial sweeteners suggesting that they're maybe not so benign for humans? So let's start with like the, probably the worst set of artificial, artificial sweeteners, the most artificial of the artificial sweeteners, the non-caloric sweeteners like sucralose, which is Splenda, ACE-K, which is Asulfame-K, aspartame. Those are the biggest ones today, those big three. So ACE-K, Splenda Sucralose, and Aspartame. And there's, there's good evidence that all three of those 
change the gut microbiome. They disrupt the way that the bacteria in the gut talk to each other, which is called quorum sensing. So that doesn't sound like a good thing to me. That doesn't sound like something we'd want to do. But even going deeper than that, there's research by uh, a psychologist out of, I think she's in Yale and maybe a Canadian university, Dana Small, I think is her name. And she did a study with sucralose, and, which is Splenda. And they didn't even intend the study to show this. It was sort of an accident of the study. But they had multiple different sets of drinks. But one of the drinks had sucralose, about 30 grams of sucralose with about, I think about 30 grams of uh, maybe less than that in terms of the maltodextrin, maybe 20 grams of maltodextrin and 30 grams of sucralose. And when they gave people this drink, seven drinks of sucralose plus a carbohydrate, maltodextrin, which is a glucose polysaccharide, over seven weeks, excuse me, over two weeks, seven drinks over two weeks, they had changes in a negative way in their insulin response, meaning that their insulin was hyper-responding. Seven drinks over two weeks changed people's insulin response, changed people's glucose response in humans, and especially in adolescents. So they had an arm of the study that was 13 to 17-year-olds. And they had to stop that arm early <laughs> because the kids became so insulin resistant so fast. They had to shut it down. Like, that's horrible. And you think, okay, how many products are there in any grocery store that have Splenda and a carbohydrate together? Last, the last estimate I saw was over 3,000. And how many of those are eaten by some teenager or adult who thinks that a reduced calorie cranberry juice is a good thing? It's always reduced calorie foods, right? So it's going to be reduced calorie food that's going to have carbohydrates that your body is used to seeing, glucose, fructose, sucrose, things like this in these foods naturally occurring. There's so many foods in any grocery store that are going to have some carbohydrate plus sucralose. And there's good evidence now that this is confusing the body. Mm. The body's essentially seeing or perceiving at the level of the gut and then the vagus nerve in the brain a level of sweetness that is not, not matched by the calories that are coming with that. So the neurometabolic connection between the gut and the brain gets disordered. And yet we're generally telling people that artificial sweeteners are good because they're less calories and less calories allows you to lose weight, which is kind of crazy. So I suspect that if we did the same study with ACE-K or aspartame, you would probably see the same results in terms of neurometabolic derangements, disordered insulin signaling, when people are doing the sweeteners with carbohydrates. Now to be fair to the study, they had an arm where it was just sucralose and it didn't have the same effect. But how often does someone just drink a Diet Coke with nothing else? Mm. How often does a kid just drink a Diet Coke or a Diet Monster or a Red Bull that's gonna, all these like diet drinks that say they have, they tout the fact that they have no sugar. They celebrate the fact that they have no sugar, which probably is a good thing that they don't have processed sugar, but what are they putting instead? Some artificial sweetener, usually, sweet, usually sucralose, Splenda, ACE-K, aspartame in there. And so, these are almost always consumed with some sort of food, which is going to have carbohydrates in them. So if you just gave someone these artificial sweeteners without any carbohydrates, you might not have the same neurometabolic derangements. You're going to have the same gut effects in terms of quorum sensing, changing bacterial populations, but you may not get the same neurometabolic effects. But I think that the majority of people are going to consume non-nutritive, that is non-caloric or very low caloric sweeteners like Splenda, sucralose with other foods. And they're trying to lose weight if they're doing this, and they're probably going backwards, right? They're mm. probably doing themselves harm in terms of insulin signaling. And then you have a separate set of sweeteners, which people think are benign. Whenever I talk about artificial sweeteners, the questions I always get are, what about Splenda? Excuse me, what about Stevia? And what about monk fruit? So that the ones that are supposedly natural. But unfortunately, Stevia also changes the gut flora. We know that 
pretty clearly. There are studies in animal models with mice uh, that show decreased fertility or impairment of fertility when they give stevia. And stevia historically from anthropology has also been used by indigenous people to affect fertility, to prevent pregnancy. So stevia might not be as benign as we believe it to be. So then people say, what should I do? And we can talk about that. I just don't know why people wouldn't do what we've done for 450,000 years as humans, which is if you want something sweet, get some raw honey, preferably from a farm that's not around a bunch of plants that are sprayed glyphosate, or eat some fruit, or have some fruit juice that you made yourself. I mean, I think that we can get into this if you want, but I don't think that having some sweet foods like fruit, fruit juice, raw organic honey in your life is problematic for humans if they're in reasonable quantities, perhaps scaled to your activity levels. And, and yet I think people believe that that's going to lead to more weight gain than an artificial sweetener. But if we consider all this metabolic research and all the gut derangements, the question we really need to be asking and educating people on is this could be even worse trying the artificial sweeteners. Why not just do the honey and your body will thank you for it. And I think people, most people would be fine. Absolutely. We've got studies affirming how honey, obviously it's, it's a sweet substance, but it improves fasting blood glucose. Have you seen the study with yeah. diabetics? Yeah. yeah. Bananas. And by the way, I want to mention this too, just to circle back on this, because you just really brought up, this is so important because again, we tend to have tunnel vision when it comes to something that we're using or that we like. And so the jury is out on things like stevia and monk fruit. But at the same time, we're looking at, oh, this is more natural. But anything that's concentrated where they're turning it into this like crystalline powder, whatever, we should have our red flags come up. Now, with that said, you know, going back to the artificial sweeteners, there's a, this particular study, which I don't think a lot of folks have gotten a chance to see this yet. And it's just one of those things where it's just like, I knew it was a matter of time because our biology is wired up a certain way. You mentioned something where we have this post-ingestive feedback, right? We eat a thing, we evolved eating a thing and getting data back, like the calories and or the energy, it's, the food itself is matching a certain profile. And so now we're getting this sweet input, but it's just like the body's like, what the, what is going on here? And we think we could just trick our bodies and ha not have any side effects. And so this was, <laughs> this was published by the American Diabetes Society. And this was on test subjects who didn't regularly consume artificial sweeteners. This was 17 test subjects. And they found that the artificial sweetener sucralose elevated their blood sugar levels 14%. It directly elevated their blood sugar levels. It's not supposed to do that. And their insulin levels, as you talked about a little bit earlier, they elevated their insulin levels by 20% on average. All right, again, artificial sweeteners, we could think they're pretending to be sweet, but we're not getting any of these kind of side effects, but the reality is very different. So you just brought into the fold, you know, mentioning honey, mentioning fruit, things that we evolved eating as a species, but people might be surprised to hear that coming from carnivore <laughs> MD. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain yourself? Yeah, yeah. So I've always found it humbling uh, to be a doctor, to be a physician, to be someone in the health field, because we, we're always learning, right? And I, I love that I'm always learning. And my carnivore quote journey started maybe five years ago. I think when we first did this podcast, I was probably strictly carnivore. I remember sitting in the old studio and I probably was only eating meat and organs and animal fat and salt. That's all I ate for a year and a half. And then I ran into some problematic side effects, electrolyte 
issues, um, some hormonal changes. My testosterone was dropping. I was getting heart palpitations probably related to the electrolyte issues. At a technical level, if you looked at my blood work, my sex hormone binding globulin was going up, which means that your free androgens and other free hormones are going down, which isn't really what you want. And I was living in San Diego at the time and I kind of always felt cold. San Diego is kind of that cold culture, like just the, the cold environment. But I always felt colder than I thought I should be. And if you look at my thyroid labs, my free T3 and free T4 were just kind of getting low and like right on that low end of normal. But the TSH isn't moving. There's probably some degree of thyroid derangement that happens with long-term ketogenic diets. And so this is what I realized. And I added back fruit. I added back honey first, then fruit. And so many of these issues I had got better. And you can see this on my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health. I've gone to great lengths to show people my labs. I love yeah. the, as Tim Ferriss says, the opening of the kimono. Like I just, I show people my blood work. And while I'm in LA now, I'm gonna get another set of blood work. So I did a podcast in August with blood work, podcast in November with blood work. I think I did a June podcast in 2022 with blood work. And you can see in that stuff, like my testosterone goes up, my thyroid labs go up, the electrolytes normalize, the sex hormone binding lobulin comes down, uh, you know, subjectively sleeping better, don't have cramps in my muscles. I can go to a climbing wall and actually climb uh, and not have a cramp in my calf when I'm pointing my foot to a hold. I remember at some point in my sort of carnivore experimentation with a fully ketogenic diet, I would, I would flex my, my uh, forearm and I would get a cramp in my forearm. A lot of people get cramps in their calves. Yeah. I, was getting, I would get forearm cramps. This is not right. And so what we now, what I learned that I was never taught in medical school, and I feel very humbled by this, is that insulin is not the enemy. Um, and postprandial, after eating, so after a meal, your insulin goes up. And I think that for some unfortunate reason in the low carb community, I think a lot of people are very intelligent and well-intentioned, but they don't understand that that's a positive thing. And I never learned in medical school that insulin has like essentially non-replaceable actions at the level of the kidney to hold on to electrolytes. So if you are mm. always eating keto, your insulin's always low, which is sort of good, but your insulin's always low. You're never getting a postprandial insulin bump and your kidney is never getting a signal to hold on to calcium, to hold on to magnesium, to hold on to potassium or calcium. And so you're getting all these issues that are related to all the electrolytes being out of whack. Because if your sodium goes low, your body's gonna switch it for potassium to hold on to sodium. And then if your magnesium or your calcium goes low, your body, your body has all these uh, antiporters and symporters in the kidney where you're absorbing electrolytes together and uh, you know in opposition. So you're gonna switch things out. It's like you're you're playing Uno or something and you're trading cards because you need a little more of this electrolyte, you have to sacrifice that electrolyte. And I've seen so many people on long-term ketogenic diets who were really working hard to lose weight and become healthier who had recalcitrant electrolyte issues that were unsolvable with massive amounts of sodium. And so what I learned was, hey, carbohydrates, essential for the human body, they're sort of this signal of abundance for the human body. And you, that makes sense evolutionarily. When carbohydrates are available, the the environment that you are in as a human, as a male or a female is saying, this is abundance, celebrate this. And if you're living near the equator, those carbohydrates are probably around more of the year. I mean, where I live uh, near the equator now, there's fruit year round, there's honey year round because bees are doing their things year round. And so that's a very fertile place for humans to be, but carbohydrates are a signal of abundance for us. When we pull them away, we're giving our body this winter signal. And some people might argue, oh, it's good to have a winter signal every once in a while, and that's a whole separate debate. But to give a winter signal consistently or all the time, 
leads to some pretty massive problems for human physiology. And though I think that intentional dietary choices like keto are generally to be appreciated, I think that they're being overused and a lot of people are suffering and there's not a lot of discussion about the real, like non-trivial downsides to not having carbohydrates in your diet. So now my diet is, the word carnivore is getting very flexible these days. So I thought maybe the words animal-based would be better in contradistinction to plant-based. Mostly my diet is animal foods. I eat meat, I eat organs, I have raw butter, I have raw dairy, raw milk, raw cheese, raw cream, got some raw kefir here. And then to that, I will add carbohydrates in the form of honey, usually raw organic glyphosate-free honey and fruit or fruit juice. And those are kind of titrated based on activity level for me. And it's made a world of difference. And it's, I think it's, there's still things that I leave out. And we can talk about this if you want. The vegetables are left out. So not eating all plant foods. And that's from this sort of broader perspective and framework of what are the least toxic plant foods? You know, if you want to be a healthy human, if you really want to thrive as a human, the equation that I think of is how do you get the most nutrients, micronutrients being especially important, something we don't think about a lot, like the vitamins and the minerals to make the little biochemical wheels and gears and levers in our bodies go with the least amount of toxins. So you're always going to get a little bit of toxin. You're always going to get some environmental pollution. You're driving on the road. There's contaminants in our water. No matter what we do, there's always going to be pesticides on our food. You're always going to get a little bit of plant defense chemicals in your food. But how do you get the least amount of those toxins to now to allow you to thrive most as a human? And I think it makes sense from, again, going back to that evolutionary lens, what are the most sought after foods by humans? It's not vegetables. You go to visit the Hadza. So I went to Tanzania a few years ago. They don't really celebrate vegetables. I did not see them eat a single vegetable. I went digging tubers with the women, but the guys that were there with me, the Hadza men, were like, we don't want that stuff. We want, we want to eat honey. If we find some berries, we'll eat it. And really, we want to go hunt for animals and eat them from nose to tail with all their organs. So there's a very clear pattern. And anthropologists who have done their PhDs with Hadza or the, the, the Khoisan in Southern Africa and Botswana and Namibia say the same things. Like these people, they crave either sweet foods or animal foods. So they don't really celebrate vegetables. They might eat, quote, vegetables. And by vegetables, I'm thinking of things like leaves, stems, roots, and seeds of plants. If they're starving, those allow us to be that sort of fully omnivorous human, but they're not, they're not really sought after by humans. They're very low on the total pole. And that makes sense, right? But the Hadza will not turn the blind eye to honey. When I was on a hunt with them, they found a, a beehive in a tree and those guys were up in the tree making a fire with sticks in under two minutes that the sticks that they just cut off branches from a nearby tree. They had a fire with no lighter, no matches in under two minutes. They're smoking the bees out and then they're handing these huge pieces of honeycomb down to us. And the next thing I know, I'm eating bug larvae. <laughs> you know, I'm eating bee larvae with honey dripping off of it. And we're all just really excited because they just had a kill. We were hunting baboons at the time. So they killed a baboon and we had honey and it was one of the best days in a long time for them probably. Wow, man. You know, the, the biggest thing here for me, number one, is you are a model of what we all should aspire towards, which is being a student. You know, this is the thing about you that I don't think a lot of people really get. Like, you as a human being, it should be evolution. It should be paying attention to my body and making adjustments as I go along and not to be dogmatic about things. You know, and again, there's still, because I think we could, you know, have our, our biases, there's still this openness to you to where things could 
this could be this, this could be, the jury's still out, but you're just, you're sharing the data that we have. But I respect that so much that you're, because the reason that you went into the carnivore protocol, it helped you to get well. And it helped a lot of patients that you were working with. And that's the thing about it, that I think whether it's on the other end of the spectrum, if you got a vegan physician doing this protocol, it probably helped him or her and or their patients at some point. But once we have this kind of end all be all, this is right for everybody right now, that's the problem. And so with you evolving your perspective and taking people along with you, like when you start to share, these were my numbers, this is what was going on. Like I was just like, amazing. That is so amazing because that's what we all have the potential to do. But we can't make those adjustments when we live in this dogmatic frame. And so what we'll try to do inside of it is just like, I'm just going to keto harder, right? Or I'm just going to, you know, I need to cut out more, you know, whatever the thing might be within that framework, instead of opening yourself up, like, and with this bias, which I think is a healthy bias, what have humans been doing the longest? I think that part of our problem right now as a society, especially when we become interested in health, is we have all of this infighting over minutia. And instead of looking at the big picture, like, the majority of our citizens are eating ultra processed foods. Like that's the majority of our diet. And so getting into this space where we are working on being a healthier, happier version of ourselves, but also giving ourselves permission to have diversity within that, to have healthy conversations with that and being open to change. Yeah, what my I feel like I'm doing the best when I'm making people curious. I want I want someone to be curious. I don't want to be dogmatic with what I'm doing. I've evolved in my thinking and with what I do. And if I can help someone think for themselves and do their own research, that's what my that's my goal. And even within the bounds and the framework that I'm suggesting people consider now, an animal-based diet of organs, meat, fruit, honey, and raw dairy, maybe the most nutrient-rich foods that are the least toxic, I do try and frame it in a perspective that says, if you're thriving, don't change a thing. If you wanna eat some kale or some broccoli or some spinach, great. Um, it's not a big deal if you're doing great. What's really important for me is that somebody who is suffering, who is having eczema, psoriasis, mental health issues, GI issues, obesity, sleep issues, and not finding a solution, might find what I'm doing and think, oh, maybe that's the piece I was missing, right? Maybe that kale is not great for me. Maybe the spinach has too many oxalates and that's why I have joint issues or that's why I have some arthritis. Or maybe, you know, maybe this stevia or maybe these artificial sweeteners are making me a little hungry. That's what I want people to do is to think for themselves and be curious. I, I think that in the health space, when people see me talking about an animal-based diet, they think I'm admonishing them. <laughs> this is what you should eat with a wagging finger. And that's not it at all. It's just saying, hey, this has worked for me. I've seen a lot of people who were previously kind of stuck with all these autoimmune issues or chronic health issues get better when they cut out foods that we widely consider to be healthy or that we're told are benign like artificial sweeteners or foods that we didn't even know were bad for us like seed oils. And that's what I want people to kind of just get that little red pill, you know, from that matrix, the matrix metaphor. Like I just want to make people a little curious and to think for themselves, but I do not want people to take what I say at face value. I want them to examine it to disregard it if they don't find it to be valuable, to do their own research and, and hopefully, kind of like we were talking about before the podcast, find ways to create healthy discourse between people with slightly different ideas because there is just all this infighting 
and dogmatism and people just get religious and they choose a camp. And then it's hard to, there's not really even fertile soil anymore to plant yeah. seeds and people to kind of think about how their ideas might be evolving and growing. So curiosity is the coolest thing for me. If I can create that in people, then we're doing good. We're trying. Yeah. Part of that, you know, it's a natural evolution into being dogmatic about a thing or just making it like, this is the end all be all. This way is the way when we get results with a thing, yeah. right? Especially if we've been in pain for years or struggling with a certain thing and we change something within a diet framework, then that becomes the holy everything, right? And I, of course, again, we have to be more understanding and what brought people to that place. And we are at an interesting place today where previously humans were driven by the necessity of survival right? And doing what they had to do within the environment. And also cultures previously often had a lot of respect for our place in this whole web, you know, of life here on planet earth, which has kind of had this weird separation cognitively, but we, we're still on the planet. So we're not really separate. But today, instead of really going off of what we're designed to eat and or the foods that we've eaten historically, now we can eat idealistically, right? Now we can eat based on a belief or a bias, right? And that is a, I think it's a wonderful evolution to be able to think in those terms, but evolution takes time. And so when we start to like live by this idealistic thing, and then we're suffering, you know, hurting ourselves and trying to operate within this idealistic framework, you know, this is a you know, part and parcel of like so much of the struggle that I think we're having here and not being able to have these healthier conversations. Sean, have you ever read um, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran? I can't say that I have. It's this awesome book. It's mostly poetry, but I, I'm reminded of this, this line in, in The Prophet. And it's, I'm paraphrasing him, but he says, don't say I've found the truth, say I have found a truth. And I'm thinking about this as you're describing all this, these different ways that people are trying to become healthy. And I think there are truths within vegan diets and truths within vegetarian diets. And people who find improvements in health with a vegan or vegetarian diet, they've found a truth. And when my eczema and asthma got better with a carnivore diet, I found a little bit of a truth, right? But I didn't find the whole truth. And that's what I think we're getting to here is we're, I think we're in the process or like the journey of life is about finding truths and never really believing that we've found an entirety of the truth. So it's an evolution, right? And I think that there, there are value. There's value in vegan diets. There's value in vegetarian diets. What did those people cut out that led to their improvements? But is it the whole truth? No, let's not become dogmatic and say, this is the only way. Let's just say there's a truth here and how do we put that together for other people? So that's what I wanted to say. That's what I was thinking when you were talking about this. Because there's a lot of truths and there's truths from people who think about things completely differently than me. Yeah. And they get lost when we get too dogmatic. And this is what's so amazing about our species as well is that we're so diverse and we're so diverse. I have this belief that humans have literally just tried to eat everything, you know? Probably. And if you think about it, like babies, like they just go and put stuff in their mouth and other species, you know, they go and lift, lick and sniff and all this stuff. But again, we're so evolved and we're so above these things. But in reality, you know, humans have tried to nibble on everything from like bat dung to like, you know, you know, beetles and whatever, oysters, whatever, this whole spectrum. I don't know how I got from bad dung to oysters, but you know, we've experimented. And the thing is, our ancestors figured a lot of stuff out you know, through trial and error, trial, trial and success. It kind of laid out a blueprint for us, but we can still see that blueprint in the evolution of our brain. 
as a species, even if so much of our history has been lost yeah. and, you know, burned and, you know, whatever's happened along the way. But if we can lean on to that, and this is what one of the other things I admire about you is, let me actually go and involve myself in a culture that has a lineage, right? That are still living in the ways that our ancestors evolved in as primarily hunters, but having gathering aspects in their community as well. And you going there and having the experience and paying attention and again, being open, like, oh, wow, they're, they're doing this thing, they're doing that, and adding that to your repertoire, seeing if it works for you, because there is, we have these growing fields, we have nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, and our genetics, we do have certain things that interact with our template right now, but even that can change. And that's another thing about this whole genetic conversation. Yeah, I think that people shouldn't overcomplicate it, right? Understand try and find some baseline where you feel good, you know, know, know what feels good to you and then make some experiments and see if you feel better or worse from there. But it goes back to what I was saying earlier. And I think people get lost because there's so much conflicting health information today. There's another guy or girl saying kale's the best thing on the earth. And you know, there's a bean diet. Spinach is amazing and celery juicing, right? And, and I'm going to say, oh, celery's got, you know, these sorolins, which can accumulate in the skin and cross-link DNA and might create photosensitivity and spinach is full of oxalates. So if you've got issues, maybe, you know, so I just, what I want people to think about, or what I would suggest they think about is just how do you get the most nutrients with the least amount of toxins and then understand what your baseline is so you can feel as good as possible and then kind of, you know, navigate yourself because there's definitely bio-individuality and differences between humans in terms of what foods are really gonna allow us to feel the best, but that's the goal for humans to thrive. That's the goal. And um, like you said, I think if we get too dogmatic, we get stuck and then we're just, we're calcified, we're sort of ossified, petrified wood, and we're, this is all you're ever gonna get. That's the best you're ever gonna get, but there could be so much more that we're leaving on the table. Yeah, yeah, and that's what, for me, I would love to see the journey be about, like how good can it get? Yeah, how good can it know? get? But right now we also have a large part of our population that's still in struggle and trying to you yeah. know, survive even though they have a lot of stuff they're eating, you know, but their bodies are really starving. And just to lean back into this portion, which is again, you going on these adventures and putting yourself in these really interesting places of analysis, you have another recent Indiana Jones type of experience, you know? And as of this recording right now, there's another Indiana Jones coming, if people don't know that. A shout out to Harrison Ford. You know, oh, maybe he's doing a- Is he making more movies or something? Maybe he's- Oh yeah, he's doing another Rainy Dan Jones movie. He's, he's, we gotta study him, all right? We gotta study him, you know? Um, but can you talk a little bit about this? Because you happened upon some fascinating historical context for a certain category of foods. Yeah, this is pretty amazing. And it, it does, it does find, you know, congruence with what I've seen in hunter-gatherer cultures, which is- when I hunted the baboons with the Hadza, the first thing we did was eat the organs. The first thing. So first of all, people might say, oh my God, you hunted baboons, but this is their life. This is their lifeblood. This is what they do. They hunt baboons. But with every animal that we hunted and they, that they hunted, whether it was a genet cat or a baboon were probably the bigger ones or a dick dick, which is like a small ruminant, like a really, really tiny deer. The first thing they do is eat the organs. And before I started thinking about a carnivore diet, before I started thinking about animal foods, I never really had organs. I had a little bit of liverwurst growing up, but I never ate heart until about five years ago. I never ate thymus until about three years ago. I never ate intestines. I never ate brain. I ate brain with the Hadza. So 
when when we killed this baboon, the next day, the hunter whose arrow struck the the final blow to the to the baboon hands me like the skull of a of a baboon that he's this is like treasured brain. This is this is true Indiana Jones stuff, man. Like a temple of doom when he's eating the, the monkey brains. But I literally ate baboon brains with this Hadza guy, and they love it. They love the brain. And for for a while, I've had this intuition that organs have to be a uniquely valuable food for humans. You go to Whole Foods, you go to any grocery store, Trader Joe's, Sprouts, whatever, you're gonna see meat. But how often do you see heart, or thymus, or liver, or kidney, or spleen, or brain? Almost never for most of those organs, testicle, ovaries, uterus, fallopian tubes. None of these organs are at the grocery store, so we've just forgotten about them. They're just, they're just gone. They're essentially shadow banned from our existence because people won't, won't eat them anymore. And I get it. A lot of these organs are different tastes than we've grown up with. Unless you grew up in a very ethnic family that was making soups out of these things, you, you may not have a taste for liver and you probably have never had thymus or spleen in your life because different textures and stuff. But our ancestors have always, always eaten these foods. So I kind of knew like there's got to be something unique about these foods. They're not just eating it because of the calories because they'll give some foods to the dogs. So they give the, or, the intestines to the dogs that are full of poop. They're going to give that to the dogs they, they won't eat things they don't like the taste of. They're not going to eat bitter leaves unless they're starving. So if they didn't like the taste of the organs, they would just get rid of them. They would give them to the dogs. But they find some value there. And this has always been true. There's never been a culture of hunter-gatherers or really a historical culture of humans that's been studied that doesn't eat the organs and usually eat them first and celebrate them. There are some cultures in Africa that won't even touch liver with their hands because it's so sacred. Like liver is almost worshipped by these people. So what is going on here? And you can start to look, and I started to dig, and you see, okay, at one level, liver, for instance, super nutritious. Liver is, quote unquote, nature's multivitamin. You got choline, you got vitamin A that's bioavailable in the retinol form, you got biotin, you got folate, you got riboflavin, you got selenium, you got manganese, you got magnesium, you got zinc, you got copper. But there's a whole different level to these organs that I'd always suspected was there, and we recently found some really fascinating evidence of this. It's basically medical research that's been done over the last 70 to 80 years that nobody really knows about, which is why it's kind of the Indiana Jones stuff. There are some papers that are published in journals that you can search on PubMed. There's papers with thymodulin, which is a peptide. These are short proteins, usually less than 10 amino acids, but sometimes a little greater than 10 amino acids. Peptides in these organs that don't occur in other meats or parts of the animal that have unique functions in humans. So there's double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials with thymodulin from thymus, which is an organ that sits behind the sternum in humans that show that if you give this to kids, they get less respiratory tract infections. And if you give it to elderly people, they also get less colds, flus, respiratory tract infections. So here you have an immune organ. The thymus is where the T cells of our body go to mature and get programmed. But the, the, the teaching I got in medical school is that the thymus involutes, that it shrinks as you age. But in animal studies, we've never done this in humans, but in animal studies, if you give them thymus extract, if you give the animals thymus, their thymus grows and they are more resistant to infections, both bacterial and viral. So that's really cool. We're just coming out of you know, a huge pandemic. People are worried about immunity, flu season. Nobody wants to be sick. But have you ever heard someone say, maybe take some thymus, it's flu season? <laughs> never. Mm. They might say take vitamin C or echinacea, but the data for thymus is more robust than either of those. And we've never heard about it. And there's data mostly from Germany in the 1950s and 1960s of giving almost all of the organs to animals and then seeing the corresponding organ grow. So you can give, this is what's really cool. You can see, you can give the animals like a liver or you can put liver pulp on a chicken embryo and the chicken embryo's liver gets bigger. 
the spleen enlarges. If you give it spleen, heart enlarges. It's this concept that in an organ, there possibly could be growth factors, peptides that are, that are supportive for the corresponding organ in humans. This concept of like supports like, and it's been talked about a little bit in the past. I remember Joe Rogan and Huberman talking about it on a podcast. And Joe says to Andrew, who's a friend of mine, um, is there any evidence for this? And Andrew goes, none that I'm aware of. And so I've been texting my friend Andrew, man, you gotta show you this stuff because there's actually really good evidence that when you eat an organ, it does have unique growth factors that are not present in other organs, not present in muscle meat that could support the corresponding organ. That's wild. And so to find these studies, this is what's one of the cooler parts. We had to go down these rabbit holes. This is my team at Hardened Soil. Um, had to go down these rabbit holes. And we found this book in the library in Heidelberg, Germany. And it's a book that's in German. And this book has never been digitized. You cannot search for this on the internet. It's a book in Germany, in a library. And so we had somebody go to Germany <laughs> and the book has never been checked out of the library. Nobody's ever read this book and it's German studies. And so what we did was we got the book and we had someone translate the studies from German. And what you find is that people have been talking about this for almost a hundred years, that giving an organ to an animal, even a desiccated or like a freeze-dried organ, will support the corresponding organ, will either increase the mitoses, the cell divisions of the organ, will change the way immune cells work in the organ. It's a wild thing. And then you think, okay, these organs have been completely left out of the human diet. What are, maybe we're missing something big here. And that's what's really cool. So part of what I do is a huge advocacy for eating organs. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one of my main missions for today is to figure out where I can find some liver and some heart in Los Angeles. But I, I want people to understand that these organs are powerful and that getting them in their diet will be a really, a, just like, it's just extra credit. It's just free, it's just free life points in your organism. You're gonna feel better. And there's evidence with brain extracts, phosphatidylserine from brain of cows that improves cognitive decline in the elderly. So there's, you can, and these are, those are actually widely published studies. That's another double blind placebo controlled randomized study. So it's just a really cool thing, man. And I, one of the things that I did in the last few years that I'm really proud of is build a company called Heart and Soil that makes these organs in desiccated form. So we freeze dry the organs and put them into capsules. If people can't or won't eat the organs, you can get them in capsules. I would, I want people to eat the organs fresh, but I haven't seen thymus at Whole Foods anytime recently. And it's, it's delicious and it supports the immune system, brain, heart, liver, kidney, spleen, whatever. It's really cool stuff. Can you let people know where they can find it? Yeah, Heart and Soil. It's heartandsoil.co is the website and people can go there. But I, I want you first to go to your local butcher and ask them if they have testicle or heart or liver or spleen and eat these things. And if people won't do it, check out the desiccated organs. And like I said, there's also, and this is probably, you know, from a perspective of reaching more people, this is one of the more exciting things is that there's evidence from these studies in the 1960s in Germany that the freeze-dried extracts of these retain these tonic compounds, retain these tonic properties. If you take the organ and they did this and you boil it in a heat bath, it loses these things. But freeze-drying is pressure that's very low. So basically you put this in a special machine called a freeze-drying machine. And based on Laplace's law in physics, if you have a very low pressure, you can dehydrate something basically in the freezer of your house. So you don't, it's not like a dehydrator you have in your house that's 140 degrees, you're cooking the organ and getting the, uh, the water out. You're putting the organ in a freezer that lowers the pressure and that allows you to hit the triple point and sublimate the water from basically directly into a, you know, basically it's a solid and then it becomes a gas immediately. So just, you get rid of the water at a low temperature. It's how they make space food, but it preserves more nutrients. <laughs> I just had an image of the Jetsons. Yeah, yeah. 
Do you it's, remember he used to like, you know, you could push a button and a meal pops out, you know? Yeah. It's, it's that kind of consciousness, but we can use innovation for things that are still tied to what our bodies are really designed to have. Yeah, you know? I don't even think of what we do at Heart and Soil as supplements. Technically they're supplements, but they're just food in the capsule. And we make the food in the capsule in the best way we know how. Got a quick break coming up, we'll be right back. There's a natural ebb and flow of our body temperature throughout the day. And through our evolution, there's a natural drop in our core body temperature at night to help us to facilitate sleep. Certain hormones are released, certain enzymatic processes for repair, certain things change in our brain when our body temperature is going down in the evening in association with the nocturnal pattern of life itself here on Earth. When things start to get darker, our core body temperature goes down. It's how we evolved. Now, today, we can throw a glorified monkey wrench into that natural process. And what the research indicates is that one of the primary things that's underlying insomnia is an inability for our body temperature to be regulated. Specifically in the evening, we're seeing folks with chronic sleep issues having a much higher core body temperature at night. And this was highlighted by a study that was published in the American Journal of Physiology. Now, a new study with this in mind was just conducted and it included 32 participants and they were recruited into a three-week clinical trial to see if supporting thermal regulation with their bedding can help to improve their sleep quality. Now, the researchers took subjective and objective data monitoring their sleep with devices to see the impact of their sleep conditions. And so the researchers utilize some bamboo lyocell sheets that support thermal regulation, that are antimicrobial, that are moisture wicking. And they found that by sleeping on these sheets, the study participants had a 1.5% improvement in their sleep efficiency. What does that mean? What does that equate to? That's equating to an additional 7.2 more minutes of restorative sleep per night. Now, what if we stretch that out? We're talking 43 extra hours of sleep per year. They're still doing the same activity, still in the same bed, but not getting optimal sleep. There's a difference between getting restorative sleep and just being unconscious or just being in the bed. This simple thing, just what we're sleeping on, can improve our sleep quality. By the way, subjectively, so that was the objective data, subjectively, the participants found that their mental alertness during the day following sleeping on these sheets improved by 25%. And overall, 94% of people prefer sleeping on these sheets versus whatever else they were doing before that. Now, these sheets are from Etitude, and these are my favorite. I love these sheets so much. I didn't know that this was even a thing. I didn't know that this existed, that this mattered so much. But once you sleep on these sheets, you truly understand why. They're free from harmful chemicals, irritants, allergens, they're hypoallergenic, and also they're self-deodorizing. They inhibit bacterial growth, they're breathable, moisture wicking, also supports thermal regulation, but something truly special because I love these sheets so much, I actually reached out and connected with these folks and I got a 15% off discount for our audience here. So go to attitude.com forward slash model. That's E-T-T-I-T-U-D-E.com forward slash model. Use the code model15 at checkout. 
get yourself some of these incredible sheets. And these are a great gift as well, by the way. I get these sheets for friends all the time. I love them so much. And also they're giving you a 30 night sleep trial. So you get the opportunity to sleep on them, think on them, dream on them. If you don't love them, just simply send them back for a full refund. Go to editude.com forward slash model. Again, that's E-T-T-I-T-U-D-E.com forward slash model. Use the code model15 altogether at checkout for 15% off. Now back to the show. So, you know, just to go back to this association, you know, like having that resonance with like, and, you know, the same thing can be said with, you know, the doctrine of signatures and certain things in nature having this resonance, you know, with blueberries and the anthocyanins and vision and that kind of stuff. And, you know, again, we, we might think that we don't have a map or some kind of guidance or instruction in the world around us about what human foods are. But the, the data's there, you know, we've got the scientific, you know, published data now, but also there's an intelligence and staying in touch with, you know, cultures that are still tied to that is really helpful. Because again, I, I think it's going to be jarring for some people to hear, like, you know, they're out here, you know, eating a baboon brain, you know what I mean? Like that's a far jump from, you know, uh, impossible burger, you know what I mean? And so, but we're, we have impossible burger consciousness on some folks right now. And here's the thing, it's, it's, it exists, you know, and there might be, this is where I'm at. Even though I know that this is a plethora of process garbage, I have to be open to the fact that this might actually create some kind of positive mutation where, you know, maybe we could see into the future or something like it's highly unlikely, but it's just being open to the possibility of being wrong. and being aware of my bias, which my bias is towards what have humans been doing the longest that got us here right. to a place where we have such robust health and now to see this rapid decline, because that's one of the things I'm sure that people have said to you, like, you know, even though humans were eating that way, you know, back in the day and then agriculture came along, we're living longer now, Paul. <laughs> what do you say to that? This is really important to talk about. So if you look at these anthropology studies, uh, Frank Marlowe did a bunch with the Hadza, and um, there's other authors that have worked with like the Khoisan in Africa. These are the two that I'm most familiar with. So this, is, this question's been answered. If, if hunter-gatherers like the Khoisan in Namibia or the Hadza make it out of childhood, so they make it to 13 or 14 years old, they live as long as us. So it's really a fallacy to say they live shorter lives than us. But if you calculate it with infant mortality, their life expectancy is low because there's a high rate of infant mortality in these cultures. And it turns out that being a wild human living in the bush of Africa is kind of a dangerous thing, which is probably why humans had a lot of babies in the past. That's how, that's why other species make a lot of babies. Basically during the reproductive years, many species are kind of just, they're constantly pregnant because very few of the children survive. Now, there are many downsides to the society we live in now, but one of the upsides is that we live in a safer we live in a safer world. There's not a poisonous snake crawling over to bite your kid. If your kid steps, you know, if your cat steps, if your kid steps on that snake, it's going to die. Um, there's not a cliff right there, or a cheetah, or a hyena that's going to come in and snatch your baby. Or there's not, you know, all kinds of dangerous things for kids to do. 
that lead to high rates of infant mortality. And similarly, rates of you know, death and childbirth for the mothers if there's infections or sanitation and things like this. So if you look at adult life, which is really what we're talking about here because we're talking about chronic illness. Now, then they dwarf us in terms of longevity, in terms of longevity, in terms of health span. So they are longer, they're stronger and more vital for longer than we are. It's something called squaring of the morbidity curve that if you looked at a 65-year-old Hadza male, he would dwarf us. He would crush the 65-year-old male Olympics. The Hadza is winning every day, you know, mm -hmm. in almost any feat across the population. Yeah. You know, women as well. Like a 65-year-old woman is going to be more vital, stronger, functional, functional than a 65-year-old woman today. So that's what gets lost is that their lifespan is the same, but their health span is greater than ours when you account for this high rate of infant mortality. And that's really what we're talking about because again, it goes back to what kills most of us today. It's chronic illness. Very few of us are dying of infections today. So we've solved that problem, but in the process, we've created a bigger problem, which is obesity, metabolic dysfunction, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, GI conditions, depression, mental health illness, right? Those things are not really suffered by these hunter-gatherers, especially the Hadza, the Khoisan. They don't have these things. They're just not, there are no fat hunter-gatherers. And that I think is a great statement. And you could say, well, they don't have enough access to food to become obese, but I think they could eat a lot of the food they're eating and still not become obese. It's just, they would probably be a little more muscular, maybe a little taller um, 100,000 years ago because they had much more access to food. They their hunting lands are being encroached upon by other more pastoralist cultures that are farming. So that it's true, the Hadza and probably the Khoisan in, in Namibia also, they don't have access to as much food as they would like. And they do have to supplement sometimes with things like cornmeal and even seed oils given to them by missionaries, unfortunately. But in general, I would say 80, 90% of what they're eating is things they've hunted and gathered. So the closest thing we have to hunter-gatherers on the planet and their health is exemplary and they, they have a great longevity. So this idea that they live short lives is just false and it's important to really clarify that. That seed oil and cornmeal, it's the missionary position. They're putting them <laughs> in the missionary <laughs> position, man. Listen, so, you know, again, just to, to expand our thinking and to really identify, like this is what we really want is to improve our health span. Yeah. It's not just our lifespan. We don't, we don't wanna just have extended suffering, you know, and we have this, this very idealistic view because of how things can get packaged up based on, you know, still based on a bias. And it's not to say that this is uh, negatively intended, but when we talk about centurions or cultures that live a long time, it tends to be this very clean, clear cut. And these messages that often aren't really accurate are tied to them. You know, for example, that they're largely plant-based communities. Now, this is not this is not an advocation against a plant-based diet or against a carnivore diet. This is an important conversation. You said the O word earlier, all right? And I, there's, a, there's a lot of good O words out there, all right? But you said omnivore. And if we all just have a collective awareness, just basic awareness of ourselves in the place of you know, time, evolution, being a part of this planet, humans can eat every type of food. We are omnivorous. What, the question is, what are the best foods for us? 
And so when we go solely plant-based or solely animal-based, we're probably going to find ourselves lacking in certain things. Now, we can be creative and we can find out ways to supplement those things. But your most important advocation, you did this again, you even mentioned your supplement, but you were pointing back, hey, food first. Let's go food first because the food has the stuff. But we have to be willing to experiment and we, are, we have to be willing to open ourselves up and to you know, have these conversations as well. So um, I wanted to actually ask you about, being that this is the case, you just mentioned our skyrocketing rates of chronic disease here, here in this country. A lot of folks don't realize this, man, but I, this is what we do. Like I'm staying on top of the data. The CDC published just their most recent numbers from last year. 60% of Americans now have at least one chronic disease, at least one. 40% have two or more, all right? We are a society today that the majority of us have chronic illnesses. We're not well. It's the majority of us. And that number is still trending upward, by the way. The question is, how do we get into a, a situation like that? How do we get yeah. into a situation where disease is normalized? And my question to you, and what I want you to talk about, is there's an obvious disconnect between what we're educated about, what we should be eating, and what, and what our health outcomes are. These two things are not matching up in a beneficial way. So I want to talk about some of the corruption in food policy, yeah. in education. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about that, but I want to hit on a couple other points you made before we got there real quick. So- Omnivore is true for humans, but one of the things that I learned that I was never taught in pre-med or medical school is that within zoology, within the animal kingdoms, animals tend to be either plant-based or animal-based omnivores, meaning that 75% of omnivorous species either eat the majority, 70% of their food as animal foods or plant foods. So this idea of omnivore as like, I eat a little bit of everything is not really true in the plant kingdom. Even within the plant kingdom, animals tend to go one way or the other. Primates are a good example. Chimps, bonobos, they're pretty much plant-based omnivores. They do eat meat when they're given meat. This is a whole separate conversation that we probably won't talk about in this podcast, how we got from being you know, plant-based omnivores as chimps and bonobos to what I believe are animal-based omnivores today as humans. But there are plant-based omnivores and there are animal-based omnivores. Like a dog is an animal-based omnivore. Given its free reign as a wolf, it's gonna eat most of its food as animal foods. And I think that looking at our history as humans, it's pretty clear we're now animal-based omnivores. You mentioned this a little bit earlier when you talked about the brain and the idea that the human brain gives us a, this history, this lineage. When you look at the size of the human brain, two million years ago, the human brain got way bigger. It went from about 600 cc's to 1500 cc's in the span of a million, 1.5 million years. After millions and millions of years of being the same size in our primate relatives, what happened? We don't know for sure, but a really compelling theory is we begin to hunt more and eat more animals. And cooking. Cooking too, yeah, yeah. Although I think my suspicion is that it's mostly the animals rather than the cooking, but there's a compelling argument that's being made for the cooking as well. So something happened there. And did cooking allow us to eat more animal foods as well? So something happened in the human brain. And if you look at the nutrients that we need as humans, we, can't, we don't do so well as plant-based omnivores. This is clear. We need so many nutrients that occur only in animal foods. Creatine, carnitine, choline, answering taurine, vitamin A in the retinol form, it's, it's pretty clear. The blueprint is there. So I think that humans are animal-based omnivores, eat some plant foods, but still remember animal foods, meat, organs, either fresh or desiccated, dairy, if you tolerate it, that's a whole separate interesting conversation. 
these are where we get the most of our nutrients. And then they have very low toxins. And then within the plant kingdom, the curiosity that I want to challenge people with is, are there less toxic plant foods? The other thing you mentioned were the blue zones. So there's a whole podcast I've done on the blue zones, probably two or three on the blue zones. Just wanted to bookmark, bookmark for a second or just pin the fact that if you look at the blue zones, there's five technically blue zones. Four of the five have large amounts of meat consumption. So in Sardinia, there's a pig called Sarda pig. And they, you know, in Ikaria, they have these, uh, these feasts where they eat tons of meat. In Japan, they eat lots of pork. It's one of their most favorite dishes. And there was a study we were actually talking about before the podcast where they looked at longevity in the Okinawans in Japan, and they did not find a single centenarian in the vegans or vegetarians. So to suggest that plant-based leads to longevity isn't really supported. And then Loma Linda is perhaps the only blue zone, quote unquote, where there is a significant plant-based diet as the ethos, but that's because the Seventh-day Adventists are there and it's a religious adherence to that. And if you look at Loma Lindans, we don't have great studies, but the studies we do have suggest that in the vegans and the vegetarians in Loma Linda, the fertility is quite compromised in terms of sperm motility and sperm numbers when people don't eat animal products. And that could be an excess of pesticides on the vegetables, but I think it's probably also an absence of the critical meat-based nutrients that are essential for sperm development. Male fertility was what they studied specifically, things like zinc. There's not a lot of bioavailable zinc in plant foods. So I just wanted to, yeah. I just wanted to in like, kind of color in a little bit of what you were saying because yeah. those are two really important points. And, and I then, want to circle back to, to, to the topic, the question yeah. that I asked you. Yeah. But this just really speaks to, again, the diversity of humans and human diets and inputs, but also the stuff that we'll leave out, like the story with, you know, if we're talking about in Japan, for example, right. leaving out the pork because that's a bad word to certain nutritional, you know, dogma. Yeah. But in reality, again, we have to be open and understand that it's, it's very diverse and humans can be successful doing a lot of things. That's true. The question, ultimately, you said this earlier, and I want to reiterate this. You, you had the audacity to say, if you're thriving, hey, good for you. Keep at it, right? So whether it's broccoli, whether it's Brussels sprouts, whatever the case might be. So because that's the thing that's going to come up is that there are people who are thriving doing a, a vegan protocol. And we can frame things how we want to, but the reality is that that thing exists. And... The majority, the vast majority of humans that are doing really well, and again, just getting in connection with you know your time with these cultures who are living like in this indigenous lifestyle, they're omnivores with a tilt towards uh, carnivorous framework. Right? Animals, so, yeah. But again, still omnivores. Yeah. And and we want to keep ourselves open to on that spectrum. Where can we thrive? Yeah. Where can we thrive? And that comes from nutrient dense foods, as you've talked about with these organs and, you know, um, high quality sources of, you know, various fruits and things like that. And so I love this. Now, getting back to that, these are real foods, real foods humans have eaten for a long time. Now we have dietary recommendations, you know, like this is kind of like the thing that's being spread out now. I went to a conventional university, had a nutritional science class, and I was taught the food pyramid. And the question has to be, who funded this shit? Like, who actually put this stuff together? Because we become parrots. We start parroting off what we learned in school. I paid for this education. I'm just here to help people. But seeing people following this and not being well. Today, we have another thing that's come out from Tufts University. Yeah. That has where, where we had before, again, real whole foods, whatever that variety looks like on that spectrum. And they're saying frosted 
fucking many weeks <laughs> are a healthier choice than say eggs. Yeah, it's, let's talk about it. It's crazy, dude. So, did you know that in the nutrition guidelines for 2020 to 2025, which are the ones we're working with right now from the United States government, there were 20 people on that committee and 19 of the 20 had ties to industry and pharmaceuticals. So like they undisclosed, we don't we're not going to really this isn't a big deal. 95% of people on the on the food guidelines committee for the United States and you and I more in the weeds. We don't really care about what they're, they're going to make food guidelines for, but that's what makes school lunches. That's what yeah. kids are taught in school. That's what, you know, that's what's supported by food stamps and WIC programs. And so this is a big deal. What comes out of the 19 out of 20 people had industry ties. And most of the industry ties are to things like ILSI, which is the International Life Sciences Institute, which is basically the lobbying arm of junk food, Pepsi, Kraft, McDonald's, these companies are part of ILSI and they pay so much money to this company, this lobbying thing to put representatives in Congress and you know, don't, don't step on our toes with this law or that law, or you don't wanna label, you don't wanna change labeling like this because it'll affect our sales. So the, the ILSI, I think, was one of the major funders, the major ties to people with these guidelines. And it's gonna happen again for 25 to 30, you know, or the 2020 to 20, the 2025 to 2030 guidelines, which will be out in a few years. It's gonna happen again all over. and so. The Tufts Food Compass study was, I think it took them three years to come up with this like ingenious, I'm saying that facetiously, you know, ingenious scoring system. Who knows how much funding they got from the NIH, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And basically it was a scoring system that was just, I was thinking about this, it was just based on negatives. I think that to get a high score, you just had to not have anything negative about your food. And so the negatives were things like saturated fat. Well, okay. The negatives were things like cholesterol. So an egg scores low because it has cholesterol in it and frosted mini wheats or Cheerios score really high because they don't have those things. When there's no positive accounting in the food compass that I'm aware of, there might be, but it doesn't seem like it based on the food rankings for micronutrients. There's nothing that says, hey, if you have more choline in this, which we know is as part of phosphatidylcholine in every cell membrane in your body, a building block of acetylcholine, a neurotransmitter, essential for optimal human mental performance. If you have more choline, then, then you're gonna score higher. Well, there's no choline in frosted mini wings. There's no choline in, in Honey Nut Cheerios or Cheerios or any of these foods or Pop-Tarts. There's no choline in microwave popcorn, but eggs have choline and meat has choline, but because eggs and meat have saturated fat and cholesterol, they're at the bottom of the scoring. And we, we talked about this a lot, and I think you talked about it. A bunch of people in the health space were talking about it, and there was some pushback, people saying, the Tufts Food Compass Guidelines were not meant to be compared across food groups. So they, the Tufts did it by food group. They said like, okay, of all the fruits, we're gonna rank them, this is the best fruit. Of all the meats, we're gonna rank them, this is the best meat. But in every group, they gave a rating on the scale of one to 100. And they clearly said that if the rating was above 70, the food was to be prioritized. Between 30 and 60 was to be moderated or eaten in moderation. And under 30 was to be minimized. And so when red meat gets a score of 30, and Frosted Mini Wheats get a score of, I'm blanking, I think it's 86, you know? How is that not saying that you should prioritize Frosted Mini Wheats and eat less red meat? And there's no appreciation for heme iron, B12, vitamin K2, choline, creatine, all these foods that are in red meat, all these nutrients that are in red meat, you're not gonna get in any processed foods. So when you really dig, what you find is that, again, who funded the food compass? Pepsi, General Mills, Kraft, oh, no surprise here. 
And unfortunately, the main guy at Tufts in charge of this is a physician who's also one of the co-chairs of the 2022 White House Conference on Nutrition and is almost certainly going to be involved in the next set of nutrition guidelines for 2025 to 2030. So it's, it's kind of this, I mean, it, it, it goes deep. You know, I don't think nutrition changes are ever going to come top down. We're never going to get government regulation that actually realizes that red meat is valuable for humans or that is honest about the fact that red meat is not inflammatory or tells us about studies that show that replacing grains, whole grains in the diet with eight ounces of lean red meat led to decreased CRP, you know, led to decreased inflammation and decreased insulin resistance in humans. You're never going to see that on CNN. They're never going to talk about that at the White House Conference of Nutrition because it's not compatible with their paradigm. It's kind of like so many other things we're seeing now. It's just this, the food has become politicized. And if, unless you're on the right side of the aisle, and I think it's probably for a couple of reasons that get very, very labyrinthine to unravel, but because red meat is connected with cows and cows are connected incorrectly with climate change, red meat can't possibly be good for humans, or because saturated fat in cows raises LDL, and we know that, I'm saying this again facetiously, we know that LDL causes heart disease, saturated fat can't be good for humans, and it's it just, they're all these things that are built on a house of cards. If you really look at the data regarding LDL, cholesterol, and heart disease, it's completely flawed. And what we see is that, oh yeah, this, when you give people more saturated fat in animal foods, their LDL might go up a little bit, but their oxidized LDL and their LP little a, which are much better predictors of cardiovascular disease, go down. And when you do the reverse, when you give people seed oils, oils that Harvard University claims are healthier than saturated fats, Harvard urges people to eat seed oils like canola or soybean. They might also put in their olive oil, which is probably way better than uh, canola oil or seed oil, but still has issues. But Harvard is telling people to eat seed oils. And so when they're telling people to eat seed oils, they might see a little lowering of the LDL, but Harvard is not gonna tell you that your oxidized LDL and your LP little a, which are indicators of how much of that fragile you know, LDL lipoprotein is getting oxidized, and that's really a strong precursor. That's a much better predictor of cardiovascular disease because we know, I'm getting kind of technical here, we know that in the subintimal space in the endothelium of a blood vessel, a macrophage comes in contact with an LDL particle, and that LDL particle is not oxidized, that macrophage just keeps on swimming and says, I don't need that. I don't want to eat that. But if an oxidized LDL particle ends up in front of a macrophage, it triggers a scavenger receptor, and that macrophage engulfs the LDL particle, and that's the beginning of an atherosclerotic plaque. It's called a, uh, a fatty streak or a foam cell leading to a fatty streak. So direct precursors to atherosclerosis are promoted by seed oils, but because of overarching paradigms and dogma that these institutions can't get around, because if LDL cholesterol doesn't lead directly to atherosclerosis, then we have a major problem with a multi-billion dollar statin industry, right? So it's all tied together. It's all just this house of cards and they can't possibly admit that something that raises LDL might be good for you like saturated fat when we know that stearic acid is an 18 carbon saturated fat that seems to lead to all sorts of health benefits for humans and occurs primarily in animal foods. We'll so. just We'll just throw one study up of the many. We'll throw up this study here that people can see folks taking a statin have about a 30% increased incidence of developing diabetes, for example. There's just one, all right? We've done master classes on statins and on LDL, all manner of cholesterol with Dr. Johnny Bowden is one of the greats in this kind of conversation. But I'm on a mission to change some of the derogatory terms we attach to 
natural, normal human compounds like LDL being bad. It's the bad. You're the bad. You're the bad cholesterol. Humans make it. It's it's incredibly important aspect of human health and the communication of our cells. Now, can there be problems that occur? Yes. But the biggest contributor to these problems, because again, Hadza don't have this issue, is our diet change, is devolution to eating predominantly ultra-processed foods. And the biggest thing, the most glaring thing that I think we all can just put our big boy pants and big girl pants on and just come to a collective agreement, which is canola oil is an ultra-processed food in every sense of the word. Frosted mini weeks are an ultra-processed food. Cheerios are an ultra-processed food. If these things are making up or being promoted by our most prestigious, seemingly most prestigious institutes of health, as these are foods that humans should be consuming, there's a serious, serious problem. And somebody's, lots of bodies are getting paid off of our ignorance. Something's so, going on. Listen, man, this has been amazing. Obviously, we could talk for hours, man. You're one of the most uh, insightful people that I know in this space. And I just appreciate you for for the work that you're doing and for being so freaking just on it, like always staying on top of the data and standing up for people, empowering people, you know, in a, in, in a world where obviously that can be, that can be shunned, you know, and I know that you went through a whole thing. You hit me up when it happened, <laughs> when you were, you were sharing so much information and like, literally like here, you just like, look at this journal. This is saying, you know, in, in regards to all this stuff that happened with COVID, you were just sharing a bunch of published data, but getting the, the censorship tag here, there, and getting knocked off of these platforms. And you came back with ferocity. <laughs> you have now over a million followers on Instagram in like months. And it's so incredible to see because the thing is, empowerment will find a way. You are a great example of like, seriously, if, People want to, you know, if anybody's trying to, to, to mess up your, your mission, find a way. Don't give up. Be creative. And that's what you did, man. And again, I just, I appreciate you so much. Truly, like, I know a lot of people don't get it, but I get it, man. I know how much work you put in. Thanks so much, man. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. I think it's just, you know, trying to just create content that brings people value and make them curious, trying to be undeniable and connect the dots. I'm super grateful to get to do this work. I never thought I'd be doing this when I went to medical school. And now I've got like the best job ever. I get to do creative things and talk to awesome people like you and yeah, hopefully make people super curious. Yeah. My guy. Well, again, thank you so much Thanks, for brother. stopping by, man. You can get back to your son and fun now. Man, well, I'm going to be in LA <laughs> for a little bit longer. But <laughs> All right. I appreciate you so much. Dr. Paul Saladino, everybody. Thank you so very much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Please share this out with your friends and family. We've got to keep this conversation going. We've got to spread empowerment. We've got to spread empowering conversations, insight, and most importantly, we've got to put things into play for ourselves. Experiment, go on a path of discovery and decide on what is working for me right now, what feels good. Give ourselves permission to change and evolve. And the ultimate goal here is to really thrive, not just to survive, not just to get by, but to be as healthy and radiant and as happy and empowered as we can possibly be today in a world that is often seemingly trying to push these things out of us and out of our grasp. You are so powerful to affect change in your life and in your family's lives and in your community. 
But again, it starts with us. You can send this directly from the podcast app that you're listening on, of course, and take a screenshot of the episode. You can tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and on Twitter. You can tag Dr. Paul Saladino as well. Just share this episode out with the people that you care about. We've got some epic shows coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.